You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Robert Lawrence Kuhn here, host of Closer to Truth. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to check out our other platforms like our YouTube channel, featuring thousands of video interviews with the world's leading scientists, philosophers, thinkers. And follow us on X and Instagram to stay up to date with announcements, giveaways, new content, and more. Thank you for your support wherever you follow us. Now, on to the show. Roger Penrose, mathematician, physicist, philosopher, was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. I had the pleasure of interviewing Roger in depth twice, in Oxford in 2007 and in Tucson in 2014. We covered many of Closer to Truth's fundamental questions. What things exist? Is mathematics invented or discovered? How did the universe begin? What is consciousness? While Closer to Truth has featured Roger on specific topics and in TV episodes, we now integrate his work and present a comprehensive sense of his remarkable thinking. But to do so, I wanted to speak with Roger again, currently, hear his retrospective, check his views. We discussed three favorites, what things exist, what is mathematics and why does it work, what's fundamental in the cosmos. I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, speaking with Roger Penrose to get closer to truth. In mid-2022, planning the Closer to Truth retrospective on Roger Penrose, I had an extensive discussion with him in three parts. Due to pandemic constraints, we spoke online. I start with a core Closer to Truth theme. What things exist? Let's start with your grand metaphysical framework, your three worlds, three mysteries, the physical world, the mental world, the platonic or mathematical world, each connected to the other two in your famous diagram of, of an equilateral triangle. The picture, of course, was influenced by that particular um, impossible triangle, which, which was deliberate in a way, because... In the picture, you see a mathematical world at the top, which I regard as having its own existence independently of us. And a very small part of that has to do with the physical world. We know when we get the mathematics of our physics right, it's very, very precise. However, it's only a very small part of the mathematical world which governs the operation of the physical world. So I represent this with this sort of beam coming down and physical world being encompassed in this very tiny part of the mathematical world. Then in the physical world, we have these conscious beings, and these conscious beings are a very small part of the physical world. And I regard this consciousness as having a, a different kind of existence, but it springs from that very tiny part of the physical world. But that in the 
world of conscious experience, we also have understanding of mathematics. That again is a very tiny part of, of mentality. And so that in a sense encompasses, or at least has the potential to encompass the top world, which is the mathematical world. And I sort of draw this as a kind of paradox because it's a small part of each world which seems to encompass the totality of the next one. And it's deliberately drawn as paradoxical just to emphasize the strangeness of the whole thing, I think. It was good to see Roger again, immersed in his special way of framing reality. I recall our earlier conversation in 2007 in Oxford, developing the same theme, What Things Exist, Three Worlds, Three Mysteries. Mathematics seems to have its own kind of existence. It's very important in understanding the physical world that our way of describing the physical world certainly at its most precise has to do with mathematics and there's no getting away from that. And that mathematics has to have been there since the beginning of time. It has an eternal existence, timelessness really. It doesn't have any location in space. It doesn't have any location in time. Uh, some people would take it not to have any location or not any existence at all, but it's hard to talk about science really without giving ma mathematics some kind of reality because that's how you describe your theories in terms of mathematical structures. It has this also, also this relation to mentality because we certainly have access to mathematical truths. But I think it's useful to think of the world as not being a creation of our minds because if we do, then how could it have been there before we were around? Somehow, the, if the world is obeying mathematical laws with extraordinary precision since the beginning of time, well, there were no human beings and no conscious beings of any kind around then. So how can the mathematics have been the creation of, of minds and still have been there controlling the universe? So I think it's very valuable to think of this platonic mathematical world as having its own existence. So let's allow that and say that there are three different kinds of existence, the normal physical existence, the mental existence, which seems to have a, in some sense, even greater reality is what we directly are aware of, what we directly perceive, and the mathematical world, which seems to be out there in some sense, conjuring itself into existence. And then there's the relationship between these three worlds, which I regard as all three of them as somewhat mysterious. Mystery number one is how is it that the physical world does in fact accord mathematics to such a fantastic degree of precision. So that's mystery number one. Mystery number two is how is it that when you have physical structures of the right kind, and here I'm referring very specifically to living human wakeful healthy brains, and somehow it's evoked when the structures have the, right, have the right character, whatever that is. Mentality seems to have this deep relation to certain kinds of physical structures. And mystery number three has to do with our access to the world of mathematics. And why it's a mystery is, is perhaps not so clear, but it's something that you certainly can't describe in terms of purely computational activity. There's something outside that in our appreciation of mathematics. Even, even just knowing what the, the natural numbers, zero, one, two, three, four, I could say that, you see, and you can explain to a child, they know what numbers are, but yet you can't characterize simply by axiomatic procedures what the natural numbers are. There's theorems in logic to say that. Yet how do you know what they are if you can't 
describe in a finite set of rules what these numbers are. There's another feature about this, which is that in each case, it's only a small part of one world which encompasses, ever seemingly, the entirety of the next world. So, okay, it's only a little bit of mathematics. Okay, a very subtle and beautiful and powerful part of mathematics, but there's that whole world of mathematics. If you look at any mathematical journal, pure mathematical journal, it's full of things have absolutely no relevance to physical activity. So it's a small part of the mathematical world which seems to encompass the behavior of the physical world. And it's a very small part of the physical world which seems to evoke mentality. Okay, there are far more rocks and things, <laughs> dead planets around than there are conscious brains around. And it's only a small part of our mental activities which relate to mathematics. Now the typical scientific response to that would say, okay, the mental world is just an expression of the physical brain, and mathematics is very nice, but it's something that human beings have invented to sort of describe the physical world. So there really is only one world, the other two are kind of derivative or imaginary. Well, you see, you could take that view, or to a mathematician, you might take that the mathematical world somehow is, <laughs> is, is the one, because somehow it has to be there, you see. It's, it sort of creates itself out of nothing, you see. And, and it has to be there. And then the physical reality, you might think, has its source in there. Or you might say, well, no, no, it's mentality. It's, it, it, that's where all, all our knowledge comes. That's everything ultimately has to do with our consciousness. And, and everything else is then explained in terms of it. So it isn't so clear. So each one of the worlds <laughs> can, can feel its own predominance yes, over I, the others. I think that's right, yes. I'm trying to make it look a little more kind of <laughs> symmetrical and even-handed. <laughs> and to a mathematician, the math mathematical world has a, has a kind of reality out there. It's, it's, if you like, the reality of the mathematical world, the platonic world, is an expression of, of, of the objectivity of mathematics. There is outside of us something there which is beyond any individual mathematician, and beyond the, the totality of all mathematicians. From what things exist, the natural progression in Roger's unique thinking is to focus on mathematics, its essence and effectiveness. What is math and why does it work? I'm not going to take a view, really, to say um, that anything is more real than another. I mean, I've been slightly talked into saying that the mathematical world is more fundamental, which in a certain sense I do think, because it has to be there, even if the other two didn't exist, mm -hmm. in that sense. Here's Roger on mathematics in Oxford, 2007, 15 years prior. How accurately does math describe the physical world. Well, it is extraordinarily precise. I think people often find it puzzling that something abstract like mathematics could really describe reality as we understand it. I mean, reality, you think of something like a you know, chair or something, you know, something made of solid stuff. And then you say, well, what's our best scientific understanding of what that is? Well, you say it's made of fibers and cells and so on. And these are made of molecules, and those molecules are made of atoms, and those atoms are made out of nuclei and electrons going around, and then you say, well, what's a nucleus? And then you say, well, it's a protons and neutrons, and they're held together by things called gluons, and their neutrons and protons are made of things called quarks, and so on. And then you say, well, what is an electron, and what's a quark? And at that stage, the best you can do is to describe some mathematical structure, you say there. 
things that satisfy the Dirac equation or something like that, which you can't understand what that means without mathematics. Now, mathematics can also describe things in the ordinary physical world, uh, gravitational attraction, That's electromagnetic right. attraction, and with the same kind of descriptive accuracy? Well, there's another, yeah, even more in a certain sense. Newton's theory already had a precision of something like one part in 10 to the 7, so that's, that's 10 million. Wow. And then Einstein comes along and produces a theory which is now known to have a precision something like 10 to the power um, 14. So what does that now begin to tell us about what mathematics really is? Yes, well, in a sense, this is telling us that, that our picture of physical reality depends on something, in a sense, which is more precise at least in our understanding of it, than, than, than how we think about the world. It has its own life, in a sense, and certainly mathematicians view it this way. It's something out there which seems to have a reality independent of, of, of the reality, the ordinary kind of reality, like things like chairs and so on, which, which are what we normally think of as real. But, okay, the mathematical reality is something different. It's, a, it's sometimes referred to as a platonic world, a platonic reality. What, is that, what would that mean, a platonic reality? Well, I tend to think of there being different ways of looking at reality. There's the reality of our mental experience, which, okay, interrelates with the reality, physical reality, but so then does the mathematical reality of this platonic world, which gives reality to these notions. So if you like uh, mathematical facts, like there is no largest prime number, it's something independent of ourselves. It's always been true. And, and in a sense, that had to be so, because if the physical world depended so precisely on these mathematical laws, um, I couldn't have known what to do in a certain sense if the mathematics hadn't already been there. I mean, well, that's the argument. Whether mathematics is invented by us, by human beings, trying to impose our way of thinking on the physical world, yeah or whether it is discovered because it's already out there and we're finding it because it's already there. Th those are the, That's right. the two polar views. Sometimes people do argue. They say, well, you know, it's just our way of organizing the, the, what we see about us. But I really don't think that's good enough. Einstein produced his theory mostly out of his head with uh, appealing to you know, things that were known to Galileo and so on. Um, but apart from that, uh, it, it was not much more empirical evidence, but he produced this theory which extended far beyond anything that the observations at that time told us about. And they keep on agreeing with the observations. So that theory, which is, if you like, a, a, a platonic absolute thing, I mean, it's a mathematical thing, seems to be inbuilt into the way the world operates. I like to think of mathematics as a bit like geology or archaeology, where you're really exploring something out there in the world and you're finding beautiful things or things which have been there, in fact, for, <laughs> for ages and ages and ages, and, and you're revealing them for the first time. Some of which you never dreamed of. I've never dreamed of some of them. It's absolutely right. From the deep essence of mathematics, especially math's role in describing, perhaps in constructing physical reality, it is again a natural progression to what's fundamental in the cosmos. I was in my, I think, my final year <clears throat> at University College London, where I did my undergraduate work, and in mathematics. 
And uh, I heard a series of lectures by Fred Hoyle, where he described his version of what was referred to as the steady state model. At that time, there was a great puzzle because the universe appeared to be younger than some of its contents. There were these collections of stars called globular clusters, and they were calculated to have existed for longer than the universe seemed to have existed for, which was a paradox. There was actually a mistake because of a confusion between two, two different kinds of variable stars, but that wasn't known at the time, and the steady-state model was evolved to, to, to encompass it. You say, well, you have, the universe doesn't have its origin of the Big Bang, but it went on continuously. And so the problem I had with this picture that Fred Hoyle had described about the galaxies, he said they would go further and further away, getting faster and faster and faster, and when they exceeded the speed of light, they would disappear from view. And I drew little the diagrams and light cones and things, and I didn't see how this could happen. I thought they would fade away and not disappear. And so I asked my brother, what's wrong with that? And why, I don't think I quite agree with Fred Hoyle. And he said, well, I don't know anything about cosmology, but sitting on the table over there is my friend Dennis Sharma, and he will get, tell you the answer. So, so I described my thing to Dennis, and he said that he hadn't seen this way of reasoning before. And then I went to Cambridge as a graduate student in pure mathematics, and Dennis sort of made a special beeline for me, and he decided he wanted to teach me cosmology. Roger famously takes intense interest in the initial conditions of the universe and how incredibly extraordinary it had to be. We discussed it in Tucson in 2014. Roger, you have thought deeply about the origins of the universe and have come up with a very mathematical description of what the initial conditions of the universe would have to be like. One of the most fundamental principles of physics is the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics, roughly speaking, tells us that things get more and more random as time goes on, or if you like, the entropy, which is a sort of measure of randomness, is increasing all the time. Now, okay, that's our experience, but it, there's an issue when you worry about, you know, where it came from. Now, let's just say, okay, if entropy is increasing in the future, an equivalent way of saying that is that it decreased in the past. So that means you go back and back and back and back, you reach a low state of entropy. What's the place you get to? The Big Bang. Well, one of the most striking pieces of evidence for the Big Bang is uh, this thing, sort of curve that people plot, which is the uh, Planck curve that seems to be very well fitted by the radiation coming from the Big Bang, the microwave background. And that is a puzzle because what do we see? We see evidence for what's called thermal equilibrium. Thermal equilibrium is maximum entropy. So you go back and back and back in time where you should find the lowest entropy and you find the maximum entropy. That's just obviously funny logic, you see. Well, it doesn't, it's not illogical for the reason that what we're seeing is simply photons coming from matter, roughly speaking, in equilibrium, so high entropy state. As far as the photons and the matter running around together are concerned, yes, it is a maximum entropy state. That does not take into account gravity. Gravity is very special in the universe as we see it, particularly at the Big Bang, in the sense that it was very uniform. 
Now, uniform, that's a sort of gravity strange in this way, because when things start to clump, you produce galaxy stars and so on. These come about through the clumping of material, and that's raising the entropy. So you get a more clumped state as the entropy goes up. So what you see is a uniform state, and when gravity starts to come into play, it becomes less uniform. But that is all the time raising of entropy. So there's no inconsistency with the second law, it's just it looks funny. It looks more clumpy, whereas if it had just been matter and radiation, it should remain uniform. I mean, there's always been a great puzzle, to me, which is why the Big Bang, that gravity was not activated. Everything else seems to be randomized completely, but gravity was aloof, was kept back. You've got this very uniform state, which means low gravity, no gravity. For a long time, I just played with this idea and made a hypothesis. I thought maybe it was some aspect of some peculiar quantum gravity theory, which had to be asymmetrical in time, because it's quite unlike what we get in black holes. In black holes, you get gravity dominating. Gravity is, is the main feature of, of, of the mess you get at the end. It's simply not present in the, in the Big Bang. Now, if it were a theory of singularity structure, which uh, was quantum gravity theory, it should be time-symmetric theory. Gravity and quantum theory are both time-symmetric. Why is it so asymmetrical? So I had to think of crazy quantum gravity theories or so. But my ideas have changed, really, in that it's not really quantum gravity at all. You see, in a sense, it's an argument against quantum gravity, because if quantum gravity ruled at the Big Bang, there should be a contribution from all the other things which might happen. And there simply isn't. Well, that was a, a driving force behind my CCC, conformal cyclic cosmology scheme, with all the eons, which uh, is that in order to make it work, the way the transformations work to fit the exponential expansion of the previous eon into the Big Bang of ours, you've got to kill off gravity. Yeah. You can't help it. Yeah. The degrees of freedom in gravity are not killed off, but they're transformed into ripples in the new material, which also the equations tell us have to be there, which I call the initial form of dark matter. Now, you see, that's another mystery. What is dark matter? Now, People say, well, maybe it's some super partner of some, you see. I say it's not that. It's something which naturally comes along as a partner to gravity, which comes along when you treat gravity in accordance with this conformal scaling idea. And then you find that when you transform from the remote future of the previous eon to the Big Bang of ours, there has to be this new material created. It would be the dominant material in the universe. It would also have to decay gradually over the whole eon, so it's not none left by the end of the eon. To make the initial condition for this universe work, you talk about a very, very high order of magnitude of, uh, of the initial condition. Uh, how does that work? The point about the entropy, you see, if gravity is the major contribution to the entropy, which it seems to be in the early universe, at least the absence of gravity, if yeah. you like, then you can say, well, what is the most likely situation if gravity were there? And you can make a good estimate of this, because instead of thinking expanding universe, you think of a collapsing one. And then you think of it a little bit perturbed, and then you wonder what black holes will come, and they form, and they collapse and congeal. And then you use the Bekenstein-Hawking formula, and you work out what the entropy would arrive at in this completely messy general collapse. And you find that the entropy there has a f figure 
well, it's about 10 to the 124, which means that the improbability of it not being there is 10 to the 10 to the 124. And so turning this round, you say, so how unlikely was the absence of gravity that we seem to see in the early universe if, you know, the, you imagine the creator sticking a pin in the huh? base of all possible yeah. universes, you've got to find that little yeah. point, which is the proportion of that to the rest of it is something like one in 10 to the power, 10 to the power, 124. Now, you don't believe that there was a creator with a pin, so <laughs> how did that happen? I've been puzzling over this for decades. But the idea of conformal cyclic cosmology does that automatically for you. And there are two features in this. One of them is that it snuffs off the gravitational degrees of freedom. There's a second point to this, which is when you think of eon after eon after eon, why isn't the entropy going up and up and up and up and up? As it should, the second law says. Renormalize, if you like, the entropy value. It has now come down. There's never any violation of the second law. It's just I changed my mind about what I mean by entropy. And the new notion of entropy has gone way down. So it makes sense, as far as I see. It remains to be seen whether it's the right answer. <laughs> Roger Penrose's grand vision is three worlds, three mysteries. The mathematical or platonic world, the physical world, the mental world. Roger's worldview is portrayed by the paradox of the impossible triangle where a minuscule part of the mathematical world generates the entirety of the physical world, a minuscule part of the physical world generates the entirety of the mental world, and a minuscule part of the mental world generates the entirety of the mathematical world. The paradox of the impossible triangle. Yet in Rogers' ontology, mathematics is most fundamental. And Roger's great puzzle is the huge imbalance between gravity and everything else in the Big Bang. Although I cannot go all the way with Roger, his Three Worlds, Three Mysteries vision highlights to me that in seeking to comprehend reality, we are missing something. Say this, Roger busts the monopoly that pure physicalism would impose on reality take Roger as a guide in getting closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.